We decided to release our Shmini podcast a little bit earlier than usual, but please check out episodes 91, 2, and 93 on Parshat Shmot, Va'era, and Bo respectively, which discuss Pesach-related topics like the role of memory in the Exodus experience, the purposes of the plagues, and the theme of Bait, of home, in the Exodus story and the laws that accompany it. Chag Sameach. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vayikra is titled Kedusha is in the Details and explores the way these laws try and elevate each of our most basic human functions food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and our use of time. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program, Jack's Queens and Kings, which will run from June 25th through July 12th. We'll be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish texts and thought. This week's episode has been dedicated in memory of Diana Lubin, Dina Chana Bat Rafael Meir Viminet. She loved Eretz Yisrael and passed away right before fulfilling her dream of Aliyah. Her seventh yard site this year falls exactly on Shabbat Parshat Shmini Kaftel Nisan. This podcast has been dedicated by her family who live in Jerusalem, Nechliel, and Skoki. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode on our memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content. So if you have deliberated until now about becoming part of our project, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parashat Shmini opens with the completion of the Kohanim's inauguration, which comes to a traumatic culmination with the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu. Immediately after their deaths, the Kohanim are warned about several laws, some in regard to the immediate prohibitions to mourn for the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, and others broader prohibitions, like no drinking on the job. All of these stipulations have been mined throughout the centuries as possible sources of Nadav and Avihu's sin and ultimate death. In last year's episode on this Parsha, episode 49 with Margot Botwinnick, we went deeper on the brotherly dynamic between Moshe and Aaron in the aftermath of the trauma and Aaron's reaction to the episode. However, today, in line with this year's theme of Kedusha is in the details, we will be focusing on the next section of the Parsha, which addresses the entire nation regarding the laws of Kashrut. This week, I'm excited to welcome a new guest to the podcast. Chana Lakshambab is a director of education and head of Judaics at Edu Together, which provides online courses for students in the U.S. She also teaches online for Lamdenu, a high-level women's learning initiative, and she has taught at Midrash Lindemaum and Midrash Amudim and holds an MA in Talmud from Columbia University. Chana, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I I was looking so strongly for a partner to talk about the Lachot Kashrut, which is sort of a topic that I think gets a lot less attention in our world. Maybe we'll we'll sort of circle back to that idea as we get to the end of our conversation. But why don't you bring us first into the setting of Hilchot Kashrut uh, within the structure of Avaikra? Sure. So it's it's a little surprising when Hilchot Kashrut kind of pops in there. There's uh, this narrative section 
in Parashat Shmini, as you just mentioned, about um, Nadav and Avihu. And then there's this like quick switch over to talking about Hilchot Kashrut, which then segues into talking about a whole bunch of other different kinds of Tumah, talking about Tumat Yoledet and about Sarat and about various other kind of bodily Tumot. And, um, and then it goes back afterwards to talk about the aftermath of the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, right? If you just think about the names of the parashiot, there's Parashat Shmini is where Nadav and Avihu die. And then there is Tazria and Mitzorah. And then you finally get back to Aharei Mot, which is about after the deaths of the sons of Aharon. So it's like the Torah kind of takes a time out from talking about this story in order to tell us all of these rules. And what all of these rules have in common is that they're all about, they all kind of have the theme of Tum'ah and Tahara. And the, the rules of kosher animals keep using the phrase um, Tamehu Lachem and other phrases like that. And then the other rules continue in that vein. And it seems like the Torah is now that there's been this crisis, this disaster with the sons of Aharon, the Torah wants to give us um, some guidelines so that we know how to do things safely, so that we don't end up both desecrating the holy space and so that we don't end up hurting ourselves in doing so. And in order to do that, we need to know how to um, how to distinguish between Tameh and Tahor and how to be careful about Kedusha. I think it's also a really interesting point because we often have a very powerful interweaving of narrative and law. We'll get more into this when we look at the book of Bamidbar, which this is a very clear element of the structure of Bamidbar, where we have a story which then explains the need for why we're going to now be told these laws. And I think that that's a really important frame for us to understand. And again, we can we can sort of surmise and we'll never get to a clear answer because if no one's figured out until now, then we won't figure it out today about what was the source of Nadav and Avihu's death or what, what was sort of their epic error. But the Torah clearly uses this episode as an inroad to speaking about boundaries that need to be kept. Again, the suggestion that we're, we're not making a suggestion that, you know, they ate non-kosher food and therefore things went wrong, but that the Torah is using this as a segue to bring us into the fact that not only do the Kohanim have to live a life that is of a higher, um, whether moral or ritual grounds, but that we also have to live a life like that. And so it sort of uses us as a segue and the Torah does this all the time. I really encourage anybody listening to, to think about that point. Sefer Beishit is much more narrative than law, so we don't see it there so much, but certainly in Vayikra and also in Bamidbar specifically, we see this idea very strongly. So that's a really important point to open up with. Yeah, I really like that point that you made about also how this relates not just to the Kohanim, because the whole notion of Tuma and Tahara seems to really kind of have two sides to it. One of the sides is that it's all about the Mikdash, that like, really, technically, I can be Tameh all the time if I don't go to the Mikdash, and it's fine, and it really just has to do with that one specific dimension of preserving the Kedusha of the Mikdash. But on the other hand, so many of these rules that come up in the really are not about the Mikdash. And Kashrut is 
right at the top of that list because it's really whether I go into the Mikdash or don't go into the Mikdash, Kashrut is a part of my life and I need to be careful about what I eat. And so, so we can see right away that these laws are, are really not just uh, Torah Kohanim. They're not just the rules for the Kohanim and for the temple and stuff like that, but that they are ways of having Kedusha in our lives all the time, which is, of course, especially important now in our world where where we don't have a mikdash, but where these rules still, many of them are still very, very relevant to our lives. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think this is probably a good opportunity, and you're the first partner that I'm going to do this with, to try and make a little bit of sense of some of these phrases that come up in this week's Parsha, but that are going to come up all throughout the book of Vayikra. Um, you already mentioned the, the phrase kedusha. Uh, but we also have, for really the first time in, in a list way, the ideas of Tuman Tara. So why don't we start to sort of try and make some sense of of the differences between those? What What's the opposite of what? What's what's the correlation between them? Okay, great. So Tum'ah is really kind of a new term in Sefer Vaikra, and it comes in with a vengeance. And it's a really important term throughout the Torah and throughout the Tanakh, and we really hardly encountered it before Sefer Vayikra. There's a couple of brief mentions of uh, um, the verb litame in one story, in the story of Dina in Sefer Bereshit. But other than that, it really isn't a word that gets used. And then all of a sudden, in, um, in there, there have already been a couple in the early chapters of Vayikra, but then all of a sudden, chapter 11, that's the chapter that discusses his the root tame appears 33 times. Wow. So, so now this is just a major thing, and it's something that we have to contend with. In general, the, the Torah talks about in in this chapter. The Torah talks about lahavdil bein hatame uvein hatahor, and we generally think of tahara as the opposite of tumah, but that's partially true and partially not true because tahara is basically the absence of Tuma. It's not necessarily that much of a thing unto itself. It's just, you know, if you touch a dead body, you are Tame. And if you don't touch a dead body, you are Tahor. It's just a lack of Tuma. It's like wiping the absence of color. Yes. And so it doesn't have that much personality in and of itself. I will mention, by the way, just in terms of the semantics, that the word tahor very much precedes the word tame. The word tahor appears in a lot of places in the Torah before we get to the word tame. And one really actually surprising place is that the rules of Kashrut as they come up here in Sefer Vayikra they already were alluded to right at the beginning of the Torah in the story of Noah, where Hashem tells Noah that he should bring more kosher animals on his boat than non-kosher animals. But interestingly, the phrases that he uses there are, he talks about ha-behemaha tehora, and he talks about habehema asher enena tehora. And that would be the perfect place to use the word tame, and the Torah doesn't. And it's something that the rabbis really um, develop all kinds of theories about why the Torah doesn't want to use the word tame over there when it really could have. But the, the other thing that I wanted to say about the, the word tame is that I think that the real opposite of tame, or I guess I would say the antithesis of tum'ah, is really kedusha. 
because kiddusha is is an actual thing as opposed to tahara, which is maybe just an absence of tum'ah. Kiddusha is a thing and it is the thing that is antithetical to tum'ah. The reason that we need to avoid tum'ah in our lives is in order to have kiddusha in our lives. And kiddusha is also a concept that that has been around for a long time, right at the beginning of the Torah. We find that that, that Hashem Vayikadesh um, about Shabbat. So Kiddusha has been around for a long time, but it seems that especially Kiddusha having to do with space, which is a real theme in Sefer Vayikra, requires being Tahor. I can celebrate Shabbat and be Tameh, but I can't go into the Mikdash and be Tameh. For that kind of Kiddusha, Tuma needs to be avoided. Another, I think, important distinction that can be made is between two types of impurities, two types of, of Tum'ah. One is Tum'at Hagoyot, in the words of Radat Hoffman, where he says that these are these physical impurities and there's a very clear way to uh, to get rid of them, uh, meaning you go to the mikvah and you can, you know, purge your body, so to speak, of these tumot. Uh, and when you do that, you become tahor. Uh, the other type is a, what he calls tumata kadoshot or nefashot, which are really these permanent stains. Uh, and there is no way to expiate them from your body. They become part of who you are. They, you know, become part of your personality. This is, I think, sort of like the classic, what people would think of as a symbolic way to speak about impurity in the religious sense. Why is it so important, though? Because in the example of Dina, where there we have Tum'ah, that's the, they were speaking about that second type. They're speaking about the fact that she's been defiled, our family has been defiled. They weren't speaking about something that happened and now she needs to go to the mikvah and then everything will be fine. Whereas we really have in, specifically in the laws of Kashrut, we have a mixture of these two things. Because on one hand, we have animals that are simply pure, impure, you're allowed to eat them or not allowed to eat them. But we're also told that we're supposed to have like a, a personality reaction. And the word that's used throughout these laws, we use the word teshaketsu or that we need to sort of be like almost disgusted or we need to stay away because these are things that can taint us. So it's not just don't eat it because then it'll make you impure. And then let's say you can't go to the mikdash or it's just, it's just prohibited because that's the law. But we also have a much, the language surrounding these, these prohibitions of the laws of Kashrut are actually much stronger. We were supposed to really be I, again, I would just use the word disgusted. You know, when someone's watching a, a a television series and somebody's feasting on some non-kosher meal, if you read up Sukim, it seems to say that, that we need to sort of be, we need to want to look away. Like it's something that is on a level of something that's almost immoral. And that, of course, is going to precede all the lists of sexual immoralities. But Hilchol Kashrut has like this funny intermediary status that I think it both has the ritual impurity aspect and it also has the uh, the moral impurity. Th the last thought that I had was regarding your point of why doesn't why isn't the word Tum'ah mentioned by, by Noach? And I don't think I have like a meaningful explanation for it, but I do think that on a technical level, for some reason, the Torah feels that it's a phrase that doesn't need to be introduced to the world until we have a Mikdash in it. There was no relevance to the fact that there were animals there that are that are Tameh. Um, but once you have a Mikdash and you have that ramification of can you go there or not, the status of Tameh is something that's more significant. As you hinted to, it's interesting because... Um, in general, this whole section with all of these different tomb oats, um, one of the big themes of the section is how you become not tummy. 
that like you could even read these sections with uh, Tarad and Nida and Yoleta and all of those as actually being that kind of the message of them is that don't worry, Tuma is not something that's going to hold you back forever. There's always a way to become Tahar at the end. And that's like a major thing that repeats in each of these sections is that you can become Tahar afterwards, but that Kashrut is different. I can't just eat pork and then go to the mikvah and I'm good. It's something that's also has a deeper impact that that isn't reversible the same way that like, you know, even if I get Sarad or something like that, which seems like it should be a big deal. But I can just, you know, follow the purification process and then and then I'm totally good. I'll also just add before we move on sort of to our next topic, which is that Chazal try also regarding Sarat to add to it a, a dimension of morality. Meaning in the Psukim, Sarat seems to be simply a skin ailment that renders you impure. But Chazal add this dimension that clearly it has to do with someone's behavior. Now, they don't just add it. They take it also from the story of Miriam, but they also look at Sarat and say, this too has a crossover quality. So before we sort of jump back into the Sukim themselves, why don't we take a sort of a, a zoom outlook at uh, at how Kashrut sort of develops in terms of its the adherence to these laws over time? Sure. So one of my favorite passages is in the book of Second Maccabees, which is, you know, written during the time of Hanukkah, uh, second century before the common era. There's this story about, there's a couple of stories about martyrdom. We know that Antiochus um, persecuted Jewish observance. And there's a story about this man named Elazar who died rather than eat pork. And it's fascinating because we usually the martyrdom stories that we read are about people who die rather than do a bodazara or something like that. And we don't think of kosher as being one of those like high profile sins that you would die rather than do. But um, but you have this story about Elazar dying rather than eating kosher and saying, I'm not going to defile myself and disgrace myself by eating this food. And it really shows that that kashrut, I think, has a lot to do with our identity as Jews. He says elsewhere in the story, he says, if people see me, then they'll think that I went over to another religion. And this really is kind of a defining element of us as Jews, even if it's not one of the, like the flashier mitzvot. And I think that we can kind of see in history that kashrut is often a defining line, um, a dividing line, that the New Testament in a few different places talks about the fact that now non-kosher meat is allowed. Now you can eat all animals. And it's seems like it's very important for Christians to say that so that they won't be so different. The same way that we actually do want to be different from the nations, the early Christians want to appeal to a broad audience. And so in order to not be different, they um, they permit non-kosher animals. And one thing that it does do is it makes them different from us. And that it's one of sort of the things that causes Christianity to be really something that is distinct from Judaism. And then I think a more modern example is that in uh, 1883 in Cincinnati, when the first graduating class of the Hebrew Union College had their graduation banquet, they, they 
kind of thought at that point that these new American rabbis might just be part of the landscape together with the more observant Jews. And a wide range of Jews were invited to this banquet, um, including some prominent Orthodox rabbis. And then it's known as the Trefa Banquet because they then served like basically every kind of, you know, shellfish and seafood and stuff that you could think of. And people, so the, the more traditional people there were horrified. And it was it was kind of a step towards the separation of Reform Judaism and Orthodox Judaism into two totally different things. Right. And so what, what are some other suggestions that commentators have made over the centuries at, regarding the rationale of the Chot Kashrut? Meaning we have one option, which is that it's to govern a central facet of our lives and that it's outgrowth that it separates us from other nations. And what are some other ideas that have come through? So I feel like there are two general approach, overall approaches to Kashrut that are kind of the opposite of each other. And then within each one, there are some subcategories. So I'll go through it. The first approach is, I think, the one that is more in line with the Pshat, which you pointed out that in the Pshat of the Psukim, the language that we use is not just Tamehu Lachem, but also Sheket Hu that there is something really kind of foul about these um, animals that are not kosher. The Rambam says that all of these animals that are listed in Sefer Vayikra are harmful to you and are bad for you. He says that most of this is known by science of his time. He says kind of, look at pigs. They wallow in the mud. They're gross. Why would you want to eat that and bring that into your community and have that around? I guess the cows of his day were living in palaces. <laughs> I know. Anyone who's visited uh, a barn and uh, seen what cows look like, that, yeah. But he really says that this is, this is about health. This is about cleanliness. This is about hygiene. And uh, the rush bomb also goes in that direction. And it seems like that works well with what the Torah is saying. The problem is that it doesn't necessarily work well with medicine. And there are some other mefarshim who come back and say, like, wait a minute, like, people who don't eat kosher are just as healthy as people who eat kosher. And so there you get a second approach that I think is still part of that overall approach of these animals are bad for you, which is to say that these animals are bad for you, but on a spiritual level. And the Ramban takes this direction, and the Abarbanel takes this direction, where they say that these animals are spiritually harmful. And that, for example, like one explanation is that the explanation that all of these animals that you're not allowed to eat are more of the predatory type animals and that, that we, want to, we want to avoid those um, being like those animals. Obviously, I mean, when I eat a cow, then I am being a predator, but still that, that we want to eat animals that embody certain characteristics and that it is spiritually better for us to eat those animals and not eat the other animals. Now, I would say that those two approaches are both part of one overall approach, which is the idea that some animals are better than others, whether physically or spiritually. Because then there's a second approach that you see more in modern times, which is to say that they're not necessarily better. And the Shadal says pretty much explicitly, like, there's really no difference between like eating a pig or eating a cow, if it had been the other way around and God had said, don't eat cows and do eat pigs, that would have been fine. And that the point is then one of two things, either 
separation from the nations, as we already discussed, or the other possibility is that it's really just about self-control. And one of the reasons that I think that this second approach is often really the opposite of the first approach is that if these animals are disgusting, then it doesn't take a lot of self-control to not eat them. And that in order for, if, if these laws are about self-control, that means that actually these animals are attractive to eat and that I really need to, I need to hold myself back and I need to forego something that is enjoyable and good for me in order to live a a life that is disciplined by halacha. And in a lot of ways, that approach it speaks to me a lot as a modern person. It makes a lot of sense to me because I, you know, I, I see that scientifically it doesn't seem like pork is, you know, worse than beef. But, uh, but the idea that these laws are here to, um, to help me be mindful, to help me be um, responsible about what I eat, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that exactly that last point you made was what I was thinking about as you were describing those different approaches. It seems very clear that earlier on in history, before we had like a better understanding of science, that we could make claims about the better than or like sort of that utilitarian approach, right? It's harmful spiritually, or these animals themselves seem to be not healthy. And as time goes on, and you brought in Shadal, right, getting into uh, post-enlightenment mm-hmm. Germany. So we just, we can't really, it's hard for us to accept those approaches either because they're really, you have a really rationalistic mind, which says this is not working. <laughs> it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. doesn't line up with science. And then you go towards the avenue of Hoke, which is what you described, right? This is there yeah. simply because it is. And the outgrowth of it, I don't know if it's the cause of it, but the outgrowth of it is for self-discipline. And and that again brings us back to this loop of actually putting kashrut not so far from the laws that, that regulate our sexual lives. It sort of brings us back to that idea that it's a... A desire. It's a human need that is intrinsic to all people. And, and it, we sort of expect the Torah to regulate all of our most basic human functions. And one of them will be eating food. So I think that those, the trend, you know, sort of the, the exegetical trend that you pointed out makes perfect sense in terms of the way our thought has developed over time. And so when we don't have a rational explanation, our religious response is, okay, it's a chok, right? Meaning it's there to to regulate something, which I think makes a lot of sense considering how powerful our, our desire is for food. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think as modern people also where we have access to so much food of so many different kinds. The idea of the Torah teaching us self-control is one that um, makes sense and is worthwhile. I think it's challenging, though, because we can see that you can eat kosher and still be a glutton. We can see that you can eat kosher and still get drunk and that, that it doesn't necessarily work in an obvious way to completely curb our desires. I think that that's an important point because it's true about all realms of halachic regulation. You can follow, right, Naval the Torah, any phrase you want to use that. But the point is, is that it's sort of a... A, a signpost which says, be mindful about this topic of your life. Meaning there's a lot of details and Halakha is going to flesh out even more details and we'll be very careful about keeping those over the centuries. But as a general concept, which is sort of what I always like to draw out on a biblical level, 
is be mindful about about this part of your life. You could be a vegetarian and eat horribly unhealthy, right? And in all in all realms of our life, we can follow some sort of stricture and still not use it to its full benefit. I don't think the Torah is unique in in that regard. But you know, I was thinking also when we were speaking about this a little bit before we started actually recording. Uh, if we could sort of like go back to the experience of keeping kashrut, I think you even pointed out that we say it positively keeping kosher, but it's actually only a lotus. It's only a negative commandment. That's a great point that that you had made also to me before. But the experience of keeping kosher varies tremendously depending on where you live. You know, living in modern Israel now, I rarely ever think about it. You know, okay, so maybe we, we were sort of specific about specific uh, kashruyot, but it's really negligible. It's not a challenge. This isn't an area of my halachic life that poses any challenges. Growing up in a very small town in the United States, this was, as we said earlier, a pillar of our identity because we lived in a community that was not all halachically observant. And it was constantly a challenge because we had no other place to eat. We had to make all of our food ourselves. And all you saw around you were were non-kosher restaurants. And and I find that Israelis really only come up against, like, what does it mean to keep kosher when they go on trips to chutzaretz? And so they bring their pots and pans and they have rice and they have vegetables. And, you know, if you go to Europe, it's, it's not all that much easier depending on where your destination is. But it's the experience of keeping this halacha varies so greatly depending on what your geographic location is. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, um, and I definitely feel that sense of being spoiled living in Israel and that like my kids who've grown up here really just, you know, find it confusing. Like they don't even really understand the idea that like they would need to check whether something is kosher or something like that. It's just they take it for granted. And it's not clear to me though, whether the way that we're living now is the exception or the way that you lived as a child is the exception. And that kind of gets back to that original question of whether Kashrut was intended to separate us or whether it's just something that, that happened along the way. So one thing that I was thinking about is the idea of self-restraint and that if we are looking at Kashrut through that second prism that you mentioned before of that it's chok or again, it's there to, to teach us how to restrain ourselves regarding one of our main needs of our life, which is to eat food. I think that the point that I wanted to make is that we've all, we really experience that as self-restraint, I would say outside of modern Israel. And depending of course, where you are, I mean, where my, where my family lives now, they also, it's, it's not very complicated to find, uh, to find kosher food. Mm-hmm. But the idea that kashrut is there as a, as a restraint is something that I feel is not the lived experience in many different places. And so what we've had these like little moments throughout our conversation where we have paralleled the laws that regulate sexual life with with also Hilchot Kashrut. And I feel that that experience is an experience someone has when they're living in a place with less available kosher food. I definitely am not mm-hmm. idealizing that situation. I don't think we need to strive for it, but I think that it's experience like that when we're in a place where it's less readily available and that kind of explanation resonates more. Whereas in modern Israel, you're like, Hilchot Kashrut, this is not challenging. The biggest challenge it presents is waiting, you know, five hours or six hours between milk and meat. And, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, the end of the whole self-restraint topic. So that was just the point I wanted to make that I think that getting back to the, the ta'am hamitzvah, like the reason for having it, I think people's experience of kashrut also 
also must really impact how they perceive the function or sort of the motivation for why we have these halachot. So I, I wanted to just circle back to the idea that we talked about at the beginning of Kedusha as the antithesis of Tum'ah, because especially for those of us whose lived experience is that Kashrut is not necessarily about restraint so much. I think that's really the other thing that Kashrut does for us is kind of make space for Kedusha in our lives. And um, in general, we talked about how usually Tuma is something that, you know, that just happens to people. And the main thing that you can't do when you are Tameh is you can't enter the Mikdash. But that when it comes to Kashrut, it's actually that the Tameh foods can't enter our bodies. And that our bodies are sort of parallel to the Mikdash there where we need to preserve the, the sanctity of our bodies. I was thinking about that even in terms terms of El Azar, who, you know, he's living in a time that Antiochus is defiling the Mikdash, and he's going in and he's putting Tame things in the Mikdash, and El Azar can't do anything about that. But he can make sure that his own body isn't defiled with something that is Tame, and that... Um, and that a way that we can see Kashrut in our lives is really about also just preserving a sense of Kedusha. And that um, Kedusha is not just for the Mikdash. It's something that is relevant to us in our lives and is something that every person can do. I think that this is such a powerful way to end this conversation because it gives us such an important prism through which to understand the rest of the halachot in the book of Vayikra. It's a way, it's a method, it's an avenue through which we we bring God into our life. And it's we do it through regulation. We do it through limiting ourselves. That's that's the way that as humans, you know, we function through our behavior. And so that's going to be such a central avenue that we have to to connect with God. And I, I think that really what this was phenomenal. Thank you so much. I really love this conversation. And I feel that a, we don't really talk about Al-Khokashrut so much unless we're talking about mm-hmm. like polemics of like local political sort of pettiness. Uh, and yeah. I love that we sort of went back to like the root of, of what this is trying to, to say. And I, and I think that this was really, really illuminating regarding how people can sort of think uh, deeper and broader about the way Kashrut functions in their life. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Yasefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.